Hello, everyone. I am Angela Davis from NPR News, and I want to welcome you to the Get Down. Uh, the Get Down is a coffee shop here in North Minneapolis, owned and operated by designer Houston White, who is here next to me right now. Welcome to North Star Journey Live, Houston. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. Yeah, it's uh, great to talk with you. You've been a guest on my show a few times, and now I'm in your home. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, we, we like to call this, um, it used, once was the Black Man's Country Club that emerged into an open expression and celebration of black culture, so... Welcome. I, I feel right at home. Well, we are in uh, the Minneapolis neighborhood, traditionally known as Camden. But to Houston, this is Camden Town. It's the heart of what he hopes will be a thriving, vibrant, black center of culture for Minnesota. We know that Minnesota's racial inequities are glaring, and our black middle class is meager. It's, it's very small. So what we want to know is what can be done to increase the number of families, the number of individuals who are middle class, who are part of this. How do we move from a vision of a thriving black middle class to a reality? That's what we want to talk about. Houston is one of the people who is, is out here doing the work. And let me tell you more about him. So far, he has built a barbershop, which doubles as uh, the home for his branded fashion, as well as his new uh, hair and body care products. He co-owns the coffee shop where we're sitting right now, The Get Down. And Houston has also built an apartment building that is above it and next to it called Camden Town Flats. And yes, that's a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And apparently there's more to come. We're going to find out more to come. And something he has said to a few people I want to share with you right now. Houston has posed this question. What if Prince had decided to build Paisley Park Instead of building it in Chanhassen, what if he had built it in Minneapolis? What if Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, when they built their recording studio, Flight Time, instead of building it in Edina, what if they had built it in a neighborhood in Minneapolis? What would have been the impact? How, how would that have affected the black community? Houston, you do a lot of pondering, a lot of thinking, uh, also a man of action, and obviously you do things differently. So I don't, I don't think you mean to throw any shade at, at those Minneapolis legends, but, but tell me, how do you see it? You know, what, how do you describe your vision for Camden Town? Yeah, there, there is absolutely no shade. Um, I, I honor their talent, their work, and I realized that was a different time, right? Like, they had different circumstances than I have. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, time and time again, if you look across America, um, so much of the amazing black talent gets poached and pulled from the places that made them. And so for me, coming up, you know, and being, uh, I remember someone saying to me once, you know, Houston, you're so bright. I can't believe you're going to throw your future away being a barber. I had to ponder that for a minute and then went on to say, wherever you want to go to college. And, 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 and this is a man that I, I love dearly. But the reality is in his time, as he said many years later, that was in my time the way of being successful. It's all I knew. And so by being close, what some folks thought may have been my disadvantage, but was an advantage, growing up in 18, 19, seeing all these different men who were of all socioeconomic realities, but the one place that brought them all together was the barbershop. Mm -hmm. And they very rarely connected outside of that. And we're talking about folks of the same race. 
And so I started to understand, like, dang, what if, what if Prince would have or could have been the guy that said, I'm going to buy up Plymouth Avenue mm-hmm. and build the studio here? What that would have done now for the tax base in North Minneapolis, right? This would be a very different reality. And so as Houston White partners with Target and U.S. Bank and all these other uh, amazing corporations, I'm trying to do what I talk to Ron about often and the whole crew. We're going to hold the line. And if nothing else, we can be not the example, but a example of, of, of reclamation, so to speak. I want our listeners to know, just a couple of minutes ago, some children walked by the window, and they stopped. They saw the lights. They saw you. They saw me, and they waved. Yeah. And you turned around, and you smiled, and you're like, that's what this is about. Yeah, proximity. There was a time when Mar- Malcolm X and Joe Lewis and, and all those heroes of the day were just on the block because they had to be. Now we have choices, and so often it's easier to make the choice to leave. I don't blame anybody, right? Like I'm saying there are realities and a different, lot of different reasons that people make the decisions. I'm saying that we need to put a disproportionate amount of investment back in so folks don't have to make the decision, either culture or safety, school systems, or, right, like realness. So you're following, to me, you're following your purpose and your passion in your time, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So I described a little bit about what is already here. What's still to come, right? Uh, I mean, I'll just flat out, you know, we got the OG sitting right here with folks in U.S. banking that we need $100 million right on this (laughs) corridor. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, you get the checkbook. <laughs> but, you know, what's to come? It's like one of my favorite cities in the world, New York. I, you know, and I love being right off of Gurgen Street in Brooklyn. Um, that's a fun place to be. <laughs> but everything is there. The, 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 um, the grocery store the, uh, that has... Whatever you need, Target, the little hole. I went to the, the, the best pizza spot I've ever been to in the world. They only had 20 seats. We need all of those things, proximate. We need 500-plus units of housing, diverse types of housing, right? Everything from flats to four-bedroom condos. Uh, we need a gym. We need, we need a little jazz club. We need uh, more restaurants. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. You've mentioned already your early years and working as a barber, but I really want to talk to you um, and, and make sure people know about your passion for fashion design, where it came from, and how you know you place so much value on people being able to express themselves and their individuality. And so, uh, what inspired you to get into to clothing and fashion design? Oh my, uh, my culture, my mom. Sunday's best, you know. You can be dirty all day on Saturday, but boy, you finna get that haircut and get fresh for church on Sunday. And the response that you get when you're fresh—it's a nonverbal form of communication, right? Like the dignity that comes from people saying, "Like, wow," you know. There is an esteem that one has when you just are fresh, and then taking that into school, and then. Oh, the girls like me, <laughs> you know, and the different, the different social, you know, the social status that just happens naturally. And so you lean into being fresh because it's like, this is magical. Um, and then obviously hustling, making money. Oh, you want to buy that T-shirt for $20? I just paid $5 to create. Mm-hmm. That's dope. 
Um, and then it goes on and on, right? And, and, and then when I became older, I understood the power of making statements on T-shirts, hence Black Excellence. Was- I own a Black Excellence hoodie <laughs> and a baseball cap. I think people may have seen me in photographs uh, many times. And it's interesting when I make the decision, I, what am I going to wear today? I will wear my, my Black Excellence hoodie. And it does. I walk differently. I feel just good. Yeah, right? man. It's our armor, right? Like fashion is, it's a beautiful thing. And then moving it even a little further, uh, I am from Minnesota. I am from the South. I am frugal. Uh, but I do want to be fresh. And that's where the beauty and the relationship with creating these garments with Target comes in because I can make these things that are amazing that mom can say, yeah, you can have two of those, baby. And the, <laughs> and the little the little fella or, or and or adult is like, oh, that was... I feel like we just left Gucci or something, so I ain't tripping, Mom. I'm happy, right? And, and, and we should let our listeners know, if you have not followed uh, your career closely, you now have a collection that is sold at Target stores nationwide, the Houston White Collection. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's unisex, right? Or how well, would you describe it? It's, I'm, I'm going to uh, represent for my Target comms people real quick. Select Target stores, but <laughs> nationwide, <laughs> Target.com. Right, because <laughs> right, I went looking for it. I'm like, what, where, like, where is it? And it was in the men's department. And then I, I, I think I reached out to you like, yeah, it, it's for everyone. It, 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 but that's where it's kept. It's for everyone. I mean, we all grew up wearing each other's clothes. I used to wear my, my sister's when back in, in the day with the Gap sweats, sweatshirts. We used to just change them. Like, she's wearing it to school on Thursday. We're in different grades, so they didn't know who's was who. So right. it's like I wanted to make a, a brand like that where, right, women and men can wear um, similar clothes and, like, the way the fit, the form. especially All coming, sizes. All sizes for all people, XX small to 5X. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this black middle class or, or being middle class. As, as many people listening right now probably are aware of because um, there's been so much reporting about the racial disparities in our state. Minnesota is a great place to live, can be a great place to live, especially if you're white. Uh, it is harder for people of color. It just is. It can be a great place to live here if you're a person of color, but it takes more effort. Uh, it's harder to make it happen. Um, Minnesota, we know, is one of the, the lowest ranking states in all of the country when it comes to the size of our middle class. And so a, a couple of questions for you about that, Houston. First, what is your definition of middle class? And I'm not, not talking about like economic figures, but what does it mean to define yourself as middle class, to live as a middle class person? What does that even mean? What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, that is a, f- a fantastic question, right? And, that, and, and it is not uh, economic reality necessarily, until it is. Right. Um, there are numbers attached to because it. Because the reality is that, you know, to, you know, being in Mississippi, for instance, um, we had two Cadillacs and could pretty much buy what, well, I, I felt rich. <laughs> you know, I, and I know my parents weren't making a ton of money, but I felt safe. I felt um, I, I, I could go to the refrigerator and get anything I wanted. I felt like my community was intact. I felt like um, safe, I could, fed, stable, stable, right? Like, and and I think for me, middle class is just the ability to be human and be and to feel a sense of belonging and 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 not at lack, um, both socially, emotionally, physically, mentally, right, financially, um, and that's different from place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to have. Choices? Absolutely. It's right. fields, right? Mm-hmm. Some, it could be a vacation for some. Some people don't necessarily want to go on it. But so that it's not, it's really about feeling a sense of security and safety mm-hmm. um, to me. 
And then there are things that obviously you can add on to it. Um, so building upon that thought, how does a lack of a vibrant middle class, black middle class here in Minnesota intersect with Minnesota's glaring racial disparities? What's the connection? If we have a small number of people who are able to experience living that way, what does it mean for, for everyone else? You know, I was thinking about the term dialectic. Um, defined as two different, seemingly different things can be true at the same time. Like it's snowing and it's spring. Um, <laughs> and that happens here often. Uh, but Minnesota's generous and is a great place to live and has all of these attributes that we could throw at it, but it's considered one of the top three worst places for black people to live in America, right? Like, like let that sit in. And, th- and then we have all these resources, to me, and, and that we have such high disparity, and even a place like Mississippi that doesn't have the resources does not have the same divide because of where kids grow up, how people are with community that they feel safe in and reflected, can be mentored by people that they trust, can be also corrected, right, by people that they trust so we can get closer to our, our goals. So I think that the, part, part of it to me is, is, is this notion that black people don't want to or shouldn't be together or we have so many transplants and not like this long-standing history of a continuum mm-hmm. of black vibrance. I mean, it was disrupted on multiple occasions. And so we're trying to put it back together. Um, and it's just a really heavy lift. You're known for saying human connection is the most powerful force in nature. Um, and you've spoken about the importance of belonging, human connection, powerful force. Where does, where does that come from? That's, that's a feeling. And you've, you've witnessed it. You've lived it. It's the village. You know, I mean, it is why I love and forever will be grateful for growing up in a barbershop because the the guy who didn't have any money in his pocket was treated with the same dignity and respect that the guy who, I don't know, just got promoted to the C-suite. And so realizing at, at the base we're human, right, humanity, and then seeing how my grandmother would treat people who, quote-unquote, didn't have very much, right? Like, but then seeing their response. I've seen a guy be indignant, and my uncle go up to him and talk to him, and he changes his whole tune because of the way he was approached, right? Out of love, out of, out of, out of respect, even though it was not a good situation at first. And so firsthand, seeing so many examples of the power of human beings with other human beings approaching it in the right way and seeing the outcomes. I mean, all business is built on relationships. Truly, you're an underwriter. I used to be scared out of my mind every time I apply for a loan. The underwriter, 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 like there was a computer or something. And sometimes I guess it was, but that's a human being back there making that decision at the end of the day. And then everything that we ultimately deal with is humans that are making decisions, making our food, making all of these policy decisions. And so the more we can put a human face to it. Um, I mean, it's like the, the discussions that we have about policing. Those are human beings, right? The, 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 the coaches at North High were seen as uncles, but they were also police officers. And others don't necessarily 
um, come across that way. And so I think it's just the value of trying to p- place humanity at the center of everything uh, that we do. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to a North Star Journey Live conversation with entrepreneur Houston White. Um, we're talking about his dreams for creating a vibrant, black-centric district in Minneapolis and his hopes for uh, helping to create a larger black middle class here in Minnesota. Uh, and so now, because we have a live audience and we have guests and we have an extra chair, Houston. I want to bring in another guest. Uh, we want to bring in one of your supporters. Uh, Kira Fernandez is here. Uh, Kira is an executive vice president and chief community impact uh, officer and equity officer at Target Corporation. And uh, Kira, go ahead and, and step into the barber's chair. My sister friend. Slide on in there. Um, Houston white. <laughs> You're wearing a, are you wearing a Houston white yes. jacket? That is often mistaken for Gucci. Really? Look, wherever I go, wherever, and Houston knows this, it's my favorite story. Uh, so I try to keep it for special moments Aww. and not show it off. You can't get it anymore because it's exclusive. It's gone. Well, that's um, nice of you to share. Yes. <laughs> But it and means, tell our, our radio listeners, it's that's right. Blue, it's like I want to say paisley, but not paisley. It has flowers. How would navy. you How do you describe it? it? It's You're custom. It's custom. <laughs> it's custom, and I can't have it because it's sold out. Thank but you. you can when they continue to launch. Okay. Um, so you were talking about so many things, but in particular, I feel like this garment is a reflection of a conversation we're having right now. Like accessibility, choice, comfort, freshness, style. Um, And that's just the ethos of everything that Houston and his vision has brought to our particular lines at Target. So it's a privilege to be here and to continue to support him. Um, And he's just like a marvel for Mm -hmm. us at the corporation. In your role, uh, Kira, you travel the nation, you meet lots of people, I'm sure lots mm-hmm. of impressive people. Uh, what can you tell me about meeting Houston for the first time or the first time you actually had a, a, a long conversation with him? What stood out to you about him? Well, so there are wonderful people, impressive people, to your point, everywhere. And there's real people that you have a connection with when you just, you're having a conversation and there's a there's sometimes there can just be a lot of hierarchy in the room, um, <laughs> a lot of hierarchy in the room wherever you are, and so game recognize game real recognize real. So when you kind of have those intersections, when you have the um, the genuine genuine spirit of a person, um, that's not unique to me and my interaction mm-hmm. with Houston. He has again that spirit everywhere he goes, but. Um, we really built and cultivated our relationship through Zoom. True. We were in the height of the pandemic, COVID. I was in a brand new job. Um, we were managing through intense tragedy in the Twin Cities. And we were thinking about how are we going to move from this moment to the next and our team, our uh, merchandising team, was engaging in this conversation with Houston. And so we were, it started on Zoom, after work, wine, happy hour, no virtually, doubt. with um, Houston, some of my other colleagues, and we were just talking through what this, like, what's possible? What could it look like? Where could that be? And the thing that was the common bond for us 
getting into this conversation. And I, too, don't like the term middle class. But again, I, I feel like we have some antiquated terminology that we use right now because we don't have anything else to use. Um, what does middle class mean to you? What is it? What's, it's a feeling, right? I, it's not middle. That's not a feeling to me. What Community is, is a feeling to me. Um, like I grew up on 83rd Avenue in Indian School in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was homes and a school and the barbershop and the grocery store. We had Alpha Beta and Smitty's, cat <laughs> kitty corner each other, a Circle K. Um, family-owned restaurants, mm-hmm. um, family-owned businesses. Everybody went to Tomahawk Elementary School. We walked there, or you rode the bus. That's where we had PE outside. And that's where soccer practice, baseball practice, basketball practice was. And you said this, we felt safe. Um, I grew up with a family of educators. They taught in the schools by where we lived. Mm-hmm. Um, I never so now I understand I was a child and I understand that that required a certain level of education and access, et cetera, that both sets of my grandparents had worked for. Um, but I would have I wouldn't have described that as middle class because I didn't know what that meant. I understand to your point that there's economics mm-hmm. and there's real data attached to that. But um, middle class doesn't give me a feeling. Community gives me a feeling. The nostalgia of wanting for other people, those little kids walking by, like that, that's mm-hmm. what the community is. That's what everybody did where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Now, we weren't wearing coats. We were <laughs> <laughs> it was 80 degrees on December 12th in Phoenix. Um, but that's what you did. You weighed, mm-hmm. like you walked by you when someone was in the water store. That's what you did. And as a child, you felt seen. As a child, and and I grew up in a really culturally, ethnically, racially, language-diverse community, right? Um, And everyone was having a similar experience of safety, visibility, Mm -hmm. opportunity, Mm -hmm. access. Now, again, I'm not going to sit here and live in a fictitious fairy tale of like, and everything was fair and equitable, it wasn't. My mom was the only black teacher in her school. Um, she was the only black counselor when she moved to the next level. She was the only black principal in the school. She was the only black assistant superintendent. She was the only black superintendent. So she. So it's not like I didn't see firsthand or I don't recognize firsthand that those barriers still existed, but it didn't feel that way. Let's go back to, to 2020. Um, after the murder of George Floyd, Target pledged to spend more than $2 billion with black-owned brands by 2025, uh, a commitment to address racial disparities and support minority-owned businesses. And so is Target's work with Houston White part of that? It is. Um, but I want to be clear. We were working with Houston before that happened. Mm-hmm. The work of equity and understanding aggregate and disaggregate data is not a new framework or a discipline that we had. It was one actually that we had in effect and had been activating against for years before the um, years before 2020. And when that became a more formalized, we were doing that across the organization 
in different pockets. We just brought it under one umbrella. And I think the other thing that's important about that is uh, you were talking about dialect. Uh, I'm often helping people understand just because you're investing in one area doesn't mean you're not doing anything else anywhere else. Uh, We were investing because we understand the opportunity available to magnify our business. So I'm thinking now about your question about middle class. The best thing that we can do as an organization to help people is create opportunity, develop a workforce, create skills, Mm -hmm. capabilities, because a store is a community and a community is a store. Um, And as you're building those skills in workforce development and how you connect and build belonging, those, all of those micro things come together and build safety, security, connection. And that's what we strive to do every day. And we know that there's an opportunity, particularly with um, minority-owned, people of color-owned, underserved entrepreneurs, where when they get to a certain level of capital access, they can't go any further Mm -hmm. without an investment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not giving somebody a leg up, that's leveling the playing field. And so um, that's what we're about. We're actually about opening the doors of access for everyone, but also making sure, hey, if you started three blocks down the street and the rest of us started right here, We want to help create a pathway for you to catch up. So you need a little bit more investment on that back end. So then we're all operating from an equal and equitable place. So money has been thrown at Minnesota's racial disparities in the past, but are you seeing it make a real change? I think that's a good question, a fair question, a complex question. Um, And depending on... What you look at and what you cut, you could actually draw a correlation that, yes, it has made a change, or no, it hasn't. Um, I think that if you are sitting in this room and you don't have a pit in your stomach for, oh, man, this could be, or or if you're going to see this, this thing could be better, then you're probably not attuned to what's happening in the day-to-day like experiences of people, but it, but certainly we see things that are better, things are improving, but there's going to have to be more than a tide of entrepreneurs and corporations to drive that change. It is a collective effort. And because I travel across the country, this is not a unique problem to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. It it will require a different uh, a recasting and recalibration of what it is to be in community and how different parts of the community thrive when their individual and collective needs are met, and that's what makes it complex. Because my my middle class definition. And Houston's middle class definition and your middle class definition might all be different, but we can describe what a feeling emotes in us 
that creates a sense of community. That's what we need to be striving towards. And as someone who works in diversity and equity and inclusion, how do you describe, and I'm sure you get asked this by a lot of people, how does everybody benefit, um, not just people of color, how does everyone benefit when when the playing field is leveled? Hmm. I love that question. My colleague wrote it. (laughs) I I love it also. You were talking about you're here from St. Paul. Yes, yes. And I'm here from Apple Valley. Yes. We had to drive on the same freeway to get here. Mm. That's what leveling the playing field is. That's what creating something good for everyone does. It means that we can get from one point to the next. And our preference, uh, this wasn't a requirement to be here, right? But since you and I have to drive on the same road, ought we not want it paved properly? Shouldn't we want it to not have potholes? Shouldn't we expect that it's well lit, that there's lines on it, um, that it's safe to travel on, that the lights flash, that there's a sign that tells you when you've reached the street that you need to exit? We have to be on the same road, right? And so if you want a paved road and I want a paved road, and that's what's good for I-94, and that's a way that commerce moves from one side of the country to the next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what leveling the playing field does. What, what good would it do if from North Minneapolis to 62nd, if that was jacked up, but it's smooth sailing on 35W once you hit 62 all the way to Owatonna? Mm-hmm. Who is that helping? What if you've got to get from North Minneapolis to Owatonna? You're supposed to go through the terrain to get there. We all have to travel on the same road. Eventually, eventually, my grandfather says this, you will have to pay. So you can pay me now or you can pay me later, but you will have to pay. So you might as well do it on the front end. Kira Fernandez, the Chief Community Impact and Equity Officer at Target. Thank you for, for sharing you. so much with us. We um, have another one of Houston's supporters in the room tonight that we would like to also see in the barber uh, seat, Greg Cunningham. Will you come okay. here? Slot on into that barbershop chair as we are here in the coffee shop. Uh, Greg is U.S. Bank's Chief Diversity Officer and a Senior Executive Vice President, and he plays a pivotal role in funding many of Houston White's projects. Uh, he's taking his glasses off. He's about to get serious here. <laughs> Just my glasses. Serious business we talk Yes, about. it is. Uh, and Greg, another person. I know you, you travel a lot across the nation, meet a lot of impressive people, have lots of meetings. Tell me, uh, what is it about Houston that stands out in your mind when you had a, your first really deep conversation with him about his vision, his plans, and, and why did you want to make sure that U.S. Bank threw its support behind his efforts? Because I've asked you for things and you've said no. <laughs> I'm, good at, I, I'm good at saying no. I'm good at, I'm good at saying no. Um, we've told this story, Houston and I have told this story many times of how we've met. Um, but what I will say about Houston, and it's, it's appropriate in the context that next year we will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance mm-hmm. in April of next year. And it's an important milestone for us as a country, and it's an important milestone for our community. 
because the Harlem Renaissance on the heels of emancipation during Jim Crow, it was when black people claimed their humanity. Mm. Like we are writers and poets and musicians and all of these things. And I would argue, Angela, we're in the middle of a renaissance right now. Mm-hmm. And Houston is a renaissance man. Yes. And he is, a, he is a designer, he's an author, he's a developer, he's a philanthropist, he's all of these things. And, and one of the things I said to U.S. Bank was, in all of our efforts to make investments in community, and we're a bank, and so we can have that conversation about the middle class and the role that banks have played historically in creating the disparities um, that we're trying to solve in community, um, and this notion that truth and reconciliation are actually actually sequential. We'll come back to that. But Houston is our demonstration of making people-based investments, and that's what big companies don't do well, is we can run all the numbers, and you know what? Oftentimes the deals that we're presented with in community, they're not going to pencil because of disparities in the headwinds that um, minority developers and small businesses face, they're not going to pencil financially. And so when we first started talking with Houston, the first thing I said to the team was just make it work. Figure out how to get to yes. Like, I don't care how you do it. Just get to yes, because we are making a people-based investment. uh, And this is important not only because of who he is, but his vision and how we want to think differently about systems change in our organization and how we're going to deploy capital going forward. So I have in my notes here that um, after meeting with Houston that you convinced U.S. Bank to chip in $100,000 in funding for the expansion of his current location in mid-2021, which was the beginning of Camden Town's realization. Yeah, you know, Angela, the numbers are what they are. Those aren't necessarily accurate numbers. But he's <laughs> oh, the, the, the first. The first it, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, what, what's more important <laughs> than the actual number is the investment we're making in his vision. Mm-hmm. Like you actually have to start to make, in addition to people-based investments, you have to make place-based investments. We have to change community a block at a time. Mm-hmm. You got to start with a house, a block, a neighborhood. And that's how you start to make change. Angel, do you know that almost 50% of black Americans in this country have less than a 650 credit score? Do you know what that means? That means half the community is locked out of the free enterprise system. If you have less than a 650 credit score, mm-hmm. you are paying more for everything. You can't get a car loan at a decent rate. You darn sure can't walk into a, a, a large bank and get a mortgage. And if you're a small business owner, you can't get a small business loan. And your question about the middle class, I can tell you what middle class means to me. I don't like the term either. A middle class, a a neighborhood that has an average 700 credit score, you know what they have? Liberation and freedom. Freedom. (laughs) That's a community that's free. And so if we can get our, our communities focused on not middle class or whatever class we're talking about, but there's some basic fundamentals around financial health that make all of the community better. And the reason closing wealth disparities is so important is because guess what? Everybody benefits when communities are healthy. Mm. Nobody benefits when we have communities that are suffering. The racial wealth gap is a drag on the U.S. economy as a whole. It's a drag on every single American household's income. So guess what? 
everybody should care (laughs) because it affects every single one of us. That's the work to be done. And it starts with investing in um, people like Houston and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs like Houston who are changing this, this country and these neighborhoods a block at a time. So what is the value of having this uh, new apartment building, uh, Camden Town Flats, uh, up and, and new people moving in and living in this neighborhood? Why is that significant? Culture. Mm. Like, culture is so important because culture brings us all together. Like, this is not a black... It, it's, it's centered in black culture, but you look at this room and you look at the people who come through here, it's people who just have an appreciation for the culture. But you can't, you can't look at somebody now and tell what drives them culturally. Like, you can't. My son's six foot two, 190 pounds, athletic. You would look at my son and be like, oh, he was an athlete. My son played hockey. <laughs> <laughs> he was LeBron Gretzky. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. Like, you can't look at these kids now and tell, like, you look at, you know, there's white kids with their headphones and they bop and they listen to Drake and they can't, you can't look at somebody's race and tell what drives them culturally anymore. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. That is a beautiful thing. What Camden Town is, it's a center of culture. And as Houston describes all the time, it's the combination of culture and capacity. That's what U.S. Bank brings. We bring the capacity to help underwrite and support the vision that he has for it. So this notion of culture often gets, too often, um, doesn't get discussed as an important part of the success equation. And Houston, I know that that you were inspired by what you saw U.S. Bank do for the Pullman neighborhood in Chicago. Um, Tell us about that. What happened in Chicago that U.S. Bank was involved in? You were like, yeah, this could be a good partnership. I mean, you know, Greg and I talk about that often um, because that was to me, an example of really focusing all efforts of an enterprise on a place mm-hmm. to create fields that ultimately was inspiring folks either from the neighborhood and outside of the neighborhood and saying, like, we're going to bring our brand. Mm-hmm. We're not just going to throw some money at it, right? We're going to be in, when, when, which is why I'm forever grateful um, to Greg and the folks at U.S. Bank because they didn't just deploy capital here either, right? They brought their brand. I mean, the, the, the youngsters in the, in the audience can attest, right? Like, it, it's not a bank, right? Um, There's no ATM. But, there's, a, there's a huge U.S. bank we gotta work. sign on the building. We gotta work but, on but you know what, you know what else US, U.S. bank put their sign on? The billion-dollar stadium downtown. Right. It's not a bank there either, right? That shows that you truly believe in something. And so that, to me, is the innovation mm-hmm. that happened in Pullman that then led to so many. I mean, that's how I started. I'm like, well, man, wait a minute. <laughs> I saw something in this amazing commercial with the kids on the bike in the Pullman Center and the recreation. And, like, mm-hmm. that's what happened in East Lake when they started to – that was a historically really rough neighborhood in Atlanta that just had the East Lake golf course around it. And they transformed that entire community by investing – in the people. And so Pullman is one of those examples, and that's what we're trying to replicate, you know, here in Camden Town. And we heard uh, Greg mention and speak of the anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance. Has that culture inspired you? Oh, I'm, I'm a retro futurist, right? <laughs> like, I, everything about the Renaissance, um, I stay in the 20s <laughs> and mm-hmm. then the, the, the 50s and 60s. 
Uh, we were just at a show last night, and this cat's record on an al- album called, I, I can say that album, 1978 is the name of the album, but he talked about all these convergent influences that led to him now making this music. And so, um, I mean, the look, the styles. And imagine what like black people were going through socially, emotionally, physically, financially, but then there's just so much beauty, there's so much dignity. You know, it's like, yes, I want to forever tap into whatever intestinal fortitude those folks had to look that magnificent going through that. Mm. Like, we need that right now, today. And so I'm forever inspired um, by it, definitely. Um, A question for both of you. uh, As as we see you all build and expand here in the Camden neighborhood and Camden town, um, what are your thoughts about gentrification? Because I'm sure people are already looking and wondering, like, how do we avoid um, seeing people who have lived here maybe pushed out and, and other people come in? Is that something that, that you think about or have conversations about, Greg? Yeah, all the time. I, 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 it, it's, a real, uh, it's a real danger for, for any neighborhood. But I think it takes um, uh, a couple of things in thinking about it from the financial institution's perspective. What we need in our communities, we, we don't just need big banks, we actually need a whole new financial ecosystem. We need large banks. We need black-owned banks. We need credit unions. We need institutions that can serve a broader swath of our community in different ways to make capital easier to deploy and get in the hands of individuals and families and small businesses. Small businesses are the engine of this country. And so one of the things that we've done is we've developed what's called a special purpose credit program. We've launched three of them. And what special purpose credit programs do is they actually allow you to deploy capital differently. They make it easier for small businesses and families to get access to capital and the regulators are supportive of it. And so it's a really important tool to make sure that we can help Um, close the home ownership gap, as we know, which is a huge problem. And the number one way that wealth gets transferred in this country, everybody knows, is through home ownership. I mean, Mm -hmm. Homestead Act, right? Like, think about historically um, that land is how wealth was created. So I think, um, Angela, we as a financial industry have to continue to work on creative ways to get capital in the hands of individuals and small businesses much more efficiently. All right. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate your insight, and um, we're going to let you take your seat and bring up another guest, Greg Cunningham, Senior Vice President there at U.S. Bank. Thank you, Greg. Our final guest is Asada Gilmore, who traveled a long way to be here. Uh, She lives in Houston's apartment complex, uh, the the flat. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A resident of Camden Town Flats, and she has a personal story to share. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, this is also Houston White. Oh, I'm the only one that didn't get the memo. Describe what you're wearing to oh, absolutely. our listeners um, at home. It's like a camouflage, but, but classy. Um, and I will say I took this from my fiance's closet because it is multi-purpose. He can wear it. I can wear it. Anybody can wear it. Look at that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, Asada, let's back up a little bit. Tell people how uh, you arrived here in Minnesota and uh, where you originally grew up. Yeah, so I hate to say it, but I came for a man. Um, but <laughs> you follow your your now fiance. Yes, my now fiance. Um, I am from Chicago, um, but I will say I'm a PK, a pastor's kid. For those of you that don't know that acronym, um, my mom is a pastor. She specialized in starting new church homes. So we moved quite a bit, but mm-hmm. I came, so from the DMV, um, moved to Chicago for high school. DMV. Yep, DMV. Um, DC, DC Maryland, Maryland Virginia. Virginia. If you don't know that acronym <laughs> as well, <laughs> um, went to Chicago for high school, and then I went to Purdue University in the 
middle of Indiana for college. That is how I met Jared, uh, who was from Blaine. And so I had come back here for, for holidays and I was like, Blaine, like, ah, um, <laughs> <laughs> when we graduate, like we can't go there. Right. Um, and so we graduated in May of, uh, 2021. Um, so mid pandemic and I had uh, started a job out of Chicago. He came back here to work for Target. Um, and I really tried to convince him to move to Chicago, but, uh, it didn't work out. And so I ended up moving here. All right. We're glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, growing up, and I have in my notes here, in the Hyde Park neighborhood yes, Hyde Park of Chicago, neighborhood of Chicago. Um, I'm guessing you, you were very used to a very strong black community. Absolutely. Um, were you able to find something similar when you first moved to Minneapolis? No. Um, and so for those of you who aren't familiar with Hyde Park, um, uh, a name that everyone knows, Obama, um, Michelle and Obama from Hyde Park, their house mm. was about mm-hmm. a five-minute walk from my um, apartment growing up. And so just... Black excellence is what exudes in Hyde Park. You could walk anywhere on Hyde Park Boulevard. You could go down to 53rd and there'd be black businesses. Um, always something to do. I, Chicago is in the Midwest. So we've got that Midwest niceness, but also it moves at the pace of New York, right? So very easy to make friends, uh, easy to find community. And so coming to Minnesota, as I said, I moved around a lot. So I was really, I'm, I'm very bubbly. I'm a people person. And so I thought it was going to be this easy thing mm-hmm. to find a place to call home, to find community, to find friends. Um, and I just landed flat on my face. Uh, it was really hard to make my own friends. I leaned a lot on Jared um, to introduce me to his circles. But we lived, when we first moved, we lived in South Minneapolis. Um, and nobody looked like us on our block. Um we were probably the youngest. I like to call us the menaces. Everyone else was like mid to late thirties. They had kids. Um, and not that folks weren't um, welcoming, but they weren't folks where we could go to grab lunch or we, we didn't have the same issues or, or desires. Um, and even spaces that I thought would be quote unquote black spaces, I would come up empty handed. Um, and so finding community in the beginning, I would say for the first eight, eight months was really, really hard. Um, and a I, long time. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, and I tried to convince him to move often, every day. It would come up. Okay, well, what about Chicago? If you don't want to go there, we could go to DC, Atlanta, <laughs> New York, um, anywhere but here. So now you have an apartment here uh, in Camden Down Flats in North Minneapolis. Tell me about your apartment. Tell me about your neighbors. And are you making friends? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I just want to, <laughs> they're here. They're all here. <laughs> they're all, they're half our audience. Okay. Yes, that's they're great. here. Um, and so I do just want to take a moment to say thank you to Houston um, for investing in myself and in Jared and our future. Um, and I've just been doing a lot of reflecting on where I was a year ago versus now. Um, and it's just amazing to see how the world works. Um, but yes, I'm a Camden Town Flats resident. It's not a bank. We don't have a bank in here. <laughs> I can confirm we get asked that on the daily. Because again, there's a big there's USB. Um, but we have, we call it, we call it the penthouse. Um, we have a beautiful patio that we use a lot, uh, during the summer and springtime. We have a dog. His name is Otis and my neighbors are amazing. They work for incredible companies across the city and, and being in proximity to artists, to creatives, to consultants, folks in merchandising. It's been a great community and we're able to do things together. We, we work down in the coffee shop all the time. We sometimes get groceries together. I always have a ride to the airport. Um, those sort of things. It, it's almost like a different world or grownish, but like make it cool. <laughs> well, you've heard the previous guest talk about community and connection, yeah. and and you says said that it's very different than how you were feeling a year ago. Mm-hmm. So describe that. Like like why is that such a big deal? Yeah. 
Um, being a PK, being someone I would consider myself an empath, I, I understand that my success is deeply rooted in the success of those around me. Um, and so when I, I felt isolated and I felt lonely, it was also impacting how I worked, how I saw myself in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, do I consider myself beautiful? Do I consider myself worth working for? Right. Um, and, and can I obtain the things that I dream about? And so being here in proximity to entrepreneurs, um, in proximity to creatives, in proximity to folks who are going to reaffirm that I matter. And um, not only that I matter, but I can change things. I can move things. When I walk into a room, people should feel some type of way. That just changed my whole trajectory. And so now are, are you at a point, are you thinking about home ownership? Yes. It, um, we're, we're trying to plan a wedding. So that's, a, <laughs> that's in the plans. That's right. in the plans. But yes, home ownership. And that, and that when we talk about proximity, being with Houston and Ron and Tim and talking about what could home ownership look like within the next year or two um, and not having to walk down that path alone, uh, somewhere to ask my stupid questions, the good questions. It's, it's been great. And, and it makes it more of a possibility. And Houston, did you think about ownership and generational wealth when you were dreaming up Camden Town Flats? Was that part of the plan, like to maybe inspire people to think about home ownership? Absolutely, right? Like Asada, Jared, Nate, Justice, Sophia, so on and so forth, the whole crew, they are walking, living embodiments of a dream that I had. And it doesn't just stop there. Greg and I, I've been following Greg ever since the St. Thomas study came out about why 80% plus of black professionals leave. And it, it, it ain't nine to five, it's five to nine. And so it was about building a building to get people proximate, but it was also the show and prove model. I keep talking about this constantly and everybody's like, well, you know, we're going to, you know, throw another gala or something like that. We don't need to be, you know, and I'm like, no, we got to get people together and then we make a plan and then we get them to age out. And we have already phase four design and it's the brownstone of the future. Affordable housing done differently. It's designed. It's for anybody who wants to be in the flats or anybody in the neighborhood, right? Like we have to create move up housing that's proximate and then a feeder system where these youngsters can keep coming and landing in the neighborhood. So, so would you like to see Asada and Jared and is it Otis? Otis, yes. Oh, Otis. Uh, <laughs> stay in this uh, neighborhood as they grow their families, or or do you want to see Camden Town uh, be a launching pad? You know, I, I think it's it it would. Yes, I would love to see them stay in the neighborhood. Right, like that's not a prerequisite, but I think the feels that Camden Town exudes. I think they will want to stay in the neighborhood, right? I think the reality is that Asada and Jared and all of these youngsters are going to be big homies for the next crop. We do. Okay, we, stop we, that. Big homies for the next crop. <laughs> Let's dissect that sentence. What do you mean by that? I know what you mean, but for everyone oh, following along. They're going to be mentors for the next group of young professionals who are trying to get embedded in community and that need a guide along the way. That could be a T-shirt. <laughs> I just I want to keep everybody with this. Um, Asada, you wanted black community. You say you found it. Now what? 
let's grow. Let's keep building. I'm so excited to continue to meet my neighbors, like Houston said, to find the little homies that are going to come. And because it's a cycle and it doesn't just stop here. Um, so we're, we're throwing events. Um, we're bringing out musicians, um, artists. It, it just, I think the possibilities are endless. And that's another thing that I really appreciate about Houston is that he lets us dream. What can we do in the coffee shop? What can we do in the gallery space? Um, how can I use my talents that I've maybe cultivated at work to benefit my community? Uh, so I, I think the sky's the limit. Mm. Thank you. All right. Houston, uh, before we close, I do want to ask you a final question. Uh, You've been known to say another uh, um, quote I want to share. The best things take time. Talk to me about uh, patience, the wisdom of patience. I I mean, it it was really hard for me to to come to a place of being patient, right? There was a moment that I was just saying, I'm done, I'm leaving. Um, and a mentor talked to me about legacy. Um, this building is 100 years old. And she had asked me, what if you could make 100 years of impact? You're in a building that was built in the 1920s. What if 100 years from now, if you stayed a course, what would that mean for your legacy? What would it mean for moving Minnesota forward? And so... For me, you know, I am in service to the, 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 the past, but what can I do now to really affect the future? And that's going to take time. It takes conversations like this. It takes relationships built with corporations, that culture plus capacity. It takes investing in these youngsters and not just moving the enterprise to Chan Hassan because it might be easier um, and so for me, it's truly just this idea of reclamation, liberation, and leaving a legacy that outlives me um, and truly trying to make that 100 years of impact and know it's going to take time. Hmm. All right. And I should mention that you also now have a podcast called Culture Making. I ain't stepping on your toes. Don't worry. All right. That's what I wanted to hear. All right. With that, we'll close. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been a great live audience. Thank you so much, Houston White. We'll continue to follow all of the great things that you're doing. This has been fantastic, likely one of the the coolest hours of radio on NPR. Uh, I've learned a lot. I want to thank our guests tonight. We've been talking uh, with Kira Fernandez, Target's Chief Community Impact and Equity Officer. We also heard earlier from Greg Cunningham, the Chief Diversity Officer at U.S. Bank, and Asada Gilmore, who lives here in Camden Town Flats. And thank you to everyone here in the audience uh, who joined us in person at the Get Down Houston White's Coffee Shop here in Minneapolis. A beautiful space with great coffee, great food. You should come down and visit sometime. Our next North Star Journey event will be in 2024. So stay tuned. And until then, have a beautiful holiday season. Uh, Thank you, everybody. Thank you.